Before we get started, a few points of housekeeping. Number one, maybe you noticed already, maybe you didn't, but we tend to use naughty language. Second of all, this episode is a longer one, so pop yourself in popcorn, put on your jammies, and get comfortable, because it's worth the trip. Third, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you want to rate us. It helps give us a great bump, and it really helps us get some feedback from the people listening to this so that we can continue to make these shows better, which is why we're doing it in the first place. Ben Federson. This is A Million Little Gods. So we're backtracking a bit, but for a good reason. Yeah, yeah. Words have a variety of meanings. That's that's pretty obvious when you just look at a dictionary. It's, you know, meaning 1A, 2B, 3, whatever. Yeah, I mean, it, it might seem tautological and, and basically, you know, kind of vanilla and unimpressive. But if you think about it and its implications, sometimes that can cause all kinds of problems. And that's why I wanted to go back to the interview with Armand Lois from episode one and listen to him speak about uh, the term race. And he kind of bemoans the shift in, in its meaning. He said race is a word which comes out of, I'm just going to read my notes to you. It's fine. It is my misfortune that I am, for a biologist, Oh, a scientist, rather fond of history. That is to say, I'm, you know, I, I like reading old books and so on and so forth. Most of us don't. Uh, and so I'm very alive to, um, to the historical usage of words. He said race is a word which comes out of biology and has a well-defined meaning in biology. It's a population that is identifiably genetic distinct from another population, yet not so distinct as not to be two separate species. It's not really used in that sense these days, um, but it was for a long time. And it is in that sense that the term has been used in physical anthropology and has been done so since time immemorial. And he was sort of like trying to reclaim the word from the sort of slippery and troublesome usages of it and sort of restore it to its former place of taxonomy, essentially. I was certainly aware that the term race had flown free from its historical context of evolutionary biology. But in 2003, I suppose I was still fighting something of a rearguard action. We don't use it to mean culture. We don't use it to mean language. We don't use it to mean what you think you are or who you identify with, what group other people identify you with. You know, none of that stuff, right? We can call that ethnicity, which is what people have traditionally called it, right? We'll, we'll use race for biological differences, genetic differences, the kinds of differences that are now so abundantly clear from the new genetic data. I concede that may have been a mistake.
it is absolutely clear to me now, you know, more than 10 years later, that the term race is irretrievably lost for biology. It is now, it can mean pretty much anything you want it to be, but it is something to do with culture or more likely even, not even what your culture is, but simply how you identify yourself or how other people identify yourself as. You can sort of make of it what you want. If people say to me, well, you know, race has got nothing to do with biology. Race is purely a matter of, of how you identify or your culture and so on and so forth. I go, yeah, all right, fine. I'm just going to interject here and, and voice my own skepticism regarding how value neutral that term could ever have been, um, certainly in regards to humans. And I'm not even sure about how value neutral it was ever um, in, the, in the process of, of making taxonomy. Yeah. I mean, it's so hard to extract the meaning of a word from the people who are using it mm. and the context in which it's used. And the context of those physical anthropologists of the 19th century was highly racialized caste systems. And whether they were, you know, pro those caste systems or anti those caste systems, the, the word was, would have been understood to be clearly in reference to them. All right, so we were getting into this because you wanted to talk about physics. Yeah, I do. Um, so high school physics, just just. I love yeah. my high school physics teacher, by the way, Mr. Portal. If you're still out there, I hope you are. My high best school teacher ever. Do tell. My brother is in a PhD program at uh, Yale in astrophysics because of Mr. Portal. Mr. Portal was great. High school physics was the last time that I really understood what was going on in physics. We got to electrodynamics and I was out. I, I was out after like seventh grade physics, but uh, uh, my high school teacher was, by the way, a guy named Doc Venden. He had this great accent, talked like this the whole time, and uh, I just remember him saying, every time he talked about steam, he would say, steam, it'll blow a hole right through you. That's just... <laughs> <laughs> it's something about physics teachers yeah. as a group. I don't know. They're a special, they're a special bunch. Yeah, they are. So what does high school physics have to do with what we're talking about? Okay, well, so again, let me just stipulate that um, I am no good at physics, but but um, do you remember the formula E equals one-half mv squared? All right, so E is energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, M is uh, mass. Mm-hmm. V is velocity yeah. squared. Correct. So one-half mv squared. That's kinetic energy. That is, you, yes. So wow. the, the kinetic energy in a moving system. Mm-hmm. Very good. In very a given good. frame of reference. Yes, that qualification will prove very important. But for now, let's take a step back. 
all the way to the 18th century. Two men in parted wigs, cravats, and greatcoats sit dining in a tavern in London. It's 1726 to be exact. One is a young man of 39, and the other man is 44 years his elder, and only one year out from death. Since it's an agreeably mild April evening, the older man suggests that they take their tea in the garden courtyard. There they sit, under the shade of some apple trees, and the older man begins to relate a story from his college years. The plague had forced Cambridge to shut many of its public buildings in 1666, and the older man was obliged to retreat to his boyhood home near Lincolnshire. As the younger man recounted in writing, amidst other discourse, he told me he was in just the same situation as when formerly the notion of gravitation came into his mind. Why should that apple always descend perpendicularly to the ground, thought he to himself, occasioned by the fall of an apple as he sat in contemplative mood? Why should it not go sideways or upwards? but constantly to the Earth's center. Assuredly, the reason is that the Earth draws it. There must be a drawing power in matter, and the sum of the drawing power in the matter of the Earth must be in the Earth's center, not in any side of the Earth. If matter thus draws matter, it must be in proportion to its quantity. Therefore, the apple draws the Earth as well as the earth draws the apple. The thing with Isaac Newton is, this acceptance of gravitational force was a big shift on his part, no pun intended. His laws were plain and austere. A basic working assumption for Newton was that there are no changes without forces acting upon objects in the system. Newton's first law is that an object not in motion will remain still unless it's acted upon, and a moving object will continue moving at the same rate and direction unless some other force acts upon it. In that system, something needs to be acting upon the objects. Newton's working assumption is that the objects by themselves don't act at all. What it means for objects to be attracted to each other and to act on each other simply by the fact of their mass is still unclear to us, even with the model of general relativity. We don't know why, in scare quotes, mass does what it does. But Newton figured the attraction of objects with mass to each other would be a sort of force and 
would behave just like any other force as he described in his second law. A force for Newton was a change in momentum divided by a change in time. But what is this momentum of which Newton speaks? Well, he defines it as mass times velocity, and a change in momentum is just mass times the change in velocity. A change in velocity divided by some change in time is what we call acceleration. So, combining those equations together, we can say that force is equal to mass multiplied by acceleration. So the more force you have, the more acceleration you get. I can attest to this. I used to play catch with my buddy Paul sometimes. Paul has long-ass arms with lots of leverage, so he could apply a lot of force to the baseball. It took a lot of work on the part of my hands, wrists, and forearms to counteract the force of the ball. What I'm trying to say is it stung like crap. Newton's third law. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. You inflate a balloon and... The balloon goes up, the air goes down. Or, alternatively, Paul's friggin' fast baseball hits my glove, my forearm splits with an older fracture. But, I repeat, what is momentum? Just use your intuitive sense of what that word ought to mean. I'll bet your concept is tied up with velocity or speed, right? That is, time and distance have to be coefficients in your concept, am I right? But, let me say again, Momentum is mass times velocity, according to Newton. Obviously, movement wasn't necessarily the thing Newton was trying to get at. He was trying to capture something else. The problem is, someone else was trying to get at the same thing, and that guy had a totally different measurement, and they disagreed vehemently with each other, and it was a whole thing. So now let's soar away from London, over the North Sea, over the Frisian Islands and the Tidelands of the Netherlands, over Bremen, before descending south into the city of Hanover, where we find the Privy Councillor Librarian to the Archduke of Brunswick and Lüneburg, the future King George I of Britain. The philosopher, mathematician, and polymath, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. There was already no shortage of bad blood between Leibniz and Newton by the time we get to the problem we want to focus on, as Leibniz had been accused of stealing Newton's system of infinitesimal calculus. That controversy would go on after both men's deaths, although it's generally accepted now that they both devised calculus independently of one another. But regarding that formula for momentum, Leibniz had another formula. Mass times velocity squared. And the thing he was defining was the living force. Actually, he called it vis viva, which is Latin for living force. He thought of it as a fundamental aspect of creation, and it could be either in motion or stored as potential in any object with mass. Now, first of all, this didn't jibe well with Newton's strict empiricism. And second, and most importantly, this seemed to violate the law of conservation of momentum. 
which Newton and Descartes before him had held to be a guiding principle in the study of motion. That is, in any closed system where matter is not transferred into or out of the system, and there are no forces external to the system acting on it, then momentum is constant. It won't increase or dissipate. If you increase the velocity, then the momentum will increase linearly. But if you square the velocity, then the momentum will increase quadratically, and more momentum would be present than was put into the system, and that didn't work for Newton. Except Leibniz wasn't talking about momentum. He was talking about vis viva. Leibniz and Newton wanted to prove each other wrong because they thought they were talking about the same thing. A thing they didn't even have a name for. But as it turns out, we now know that they weren't talking about the same thing at all. Momentum is the property or tendency of a moving object to continue moving. That was the thing my forearm came up against every time I had to stop one of Paul's 80 mile an hour throws without a catcher's mitt. It wasn't until 1807 that the term energy was applied by the physicist Thomas Young to Leibniz's concept. And it wasn't until later in the 19th century that the coefficient of one half was added to the equation. We now call that particular kind of energy kinetic energy, the energy of motion. It's also known as the movement of mass that can do work. We have the French mathematician Gaspard Gustave Coriolis to thank for that weirdly euphemistic term. But work is what a force does to an object when it displaces that object. So before he picked it up, Paul's baseball had potential energy, all the energy it could possibly have based on its mass and position in a physical system, namely our bucolic neighborhood park. Paul did work on the ball by throwing it at me with his gangly friggin' slingshot arm, transferring energy into the ball. So there you go, Isaac and Gottfried. No need to defend your scholarly honor. You're talking about two totally different... Oh, wait, you're both dead. Unfortunately, I have no flux capacitor that can deliver me back to the 17th century to explain the more rigidly, clearly defined conceptual scheme of our current era to these two men who were in the nascent stages of creating that conceptual scheme in the first place. Newton and Leibniz were still about 40 years out from having a word, energy, that they could collectively christen the supposedly self-same thing that they both believed they were talking about. Vis viva wasn't a word Newton was interested in. By the way, today we classify all sorts of variant forms of energy, among them kinetic, yes, but also radiant energy, thermal energy, aka heat, chemical energy, nuclear energy, electrical energy, elastic energy, gravitational energy, although some of those might be derived from the other more basic ones. And of course, we've had to revise E equals one half mv squared for velocities approaching the speed of light or extremely large masses to accommodate general and special relativity. And so we get Einstein's renowned E equals mc squared. All of those are advancements along the way to our better knowing what we mean when we use the word energy. But here's the problem. We can trace a long line back of people who believed they were talking about the same thing. 
Einstein clarified new ways of understanding energy, but so did Coriolis before him, and Thomas Young before him, and Leibniz before him. We now say that Newton was actually speaking about something completely different, but he didn't think so. Leibniz and Newton thought they were speaking about the same inchoate thing, and they hated each other for insisting on warring formulas for defining that thing. What's the nature of the marriage of meaning and words? That music you hear is a sign that it's time for us to once again beg you for some money. Remember how in 2003, Joan Kroc, the widow of Ray Kroc, the man who brought McDonald's to the world, bequeathed $225 million to National Public Radio upon her death? You know what I think? I think when she died, she was hoping that maybe for two months she might have saved Americans from listening to Terry Gross and Robert Siegel beg for money during Pledge Drive Week. It didn't really work out. Anyhow, until some billionaire's philanthropist widow decides to bequeath us nearly a quarter of a billion dollars, we're stuck begging. We can't send you a boxed set of Tom Baker Doctor Who episodes, but we do have something to offer you. If you find us on Patreon.com and make a $2 monthly donation, we will thank you personally at the beginning of the next episode. And if you make a $5 donation, we will send you a diner mug with our logo on it. It's got the big A with the never-repeating Penrose tile burst in the background, you know you want one. And just, by the way, you should know that every time someone listens to this show and doesn't make a donation, somewhere in the world a little otter pup dies. And that'll be on you. What kind of monster are you? I don't want you listening to this show. In German, we love to like put words together and yeah. form new words. I think that's also very important. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't, I don't want to posit that like language forms thinking. I don't believe that, but um, to a certain extent, there's there's overlap, I guess, to a certain extent, and and certainly, I feel like German, the language and the people want <laughs> want things to be things. They want them. to Yeah, be, we want names for things because they want to pigeonhole them, right? Like you want it to actually be something you can grab and grasp. Yeah, and it's, it's maybe, a real thing in the world. Maybe. And if you have a specific name for it, which is just one word, it gets really maybe. And if you don't have a word, then we're going to take 10 other words, put them together, put them like together. train cars, and yeah. then we have a new word. Like form. Yeah, that's how it works. Yeah. And then it's, then it's a real thing and, and yeah. we can judge people about it. <laughs> yeah. But I'm always very confused that English-speaking people don't do that. Well, in the beginning, I was. Yeah. No, we use prepositional phrases, right? Like yeah. it's very, it's you know. Or if you if you match words, you use a hyphen or just mm -hmm. like leave them standing next to each other. You don't join them to become a new word. Yeah. You know what? I haven't introduced you. You're Maren. <laughs> don't want to tell us who you are. I'm Maren. Maren, however you want to pronounce my I'm name. I'm sorry. Yeah, I can't. It's I. I can't. I see. My name is. <laughs> my name is not Aaron, <laughs> and I don't want people calling me Aaron. So I force them to call me Aaron, and then I try to, you know, be. Uh, you know, Aaron. Yeah. It sounds weird. <laughs> yeah. I've known some Aarons, but it's a weird name. It is a weird name. But Aaron is, is better. Yeah. Well. But I don't mind either being called Maren or Mar Maren. Yeah. But I'm Maren anyway, so I'm 25 years old. I'm a student at the University of Hamburg. I'm aiming to become a teacher in the future, but I've studied English as well and philosophy. Those are my subjects. And currently I'm working on my master thesis, so I'm not going to be here much longer. <laughs> I'm actually glad when it's over, I have to admit. I'm a, I'm a Harry Potter nerd. I told Elrin about <laughs> that yesterday. <laughs> that's the other interesting thing about me. I think that's it. Yeah. And yeah. I used to play theater. Now I'm done. Mm -hmm. It's good. And dance. <laughs> 
<laughs> we should. I mean, like, I, like I, talk I, about things again. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't mind. Uh, I don't mind. I mean, like, <laughs> if we go down the Harry Potter road, though, that was really. Um, oh that was yeah. Really, uh, and the an origins and the origins of the words in Harry Potter are also interesting. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. Uh, we could do that. But no, 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 no not now. Okay, no, because we, we already talked about words, and I think we could also talk about the word race, right? Mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm. implications of the word and the meanings of the word and. Yeah. Now let's get you're right. Let's get down to business. We're talking about we're talking about race. So. I mean, let's talk. About, we can talk about German and English again. Yes, we can so, because in German it's very different in its usage, I think, than in English. Yeah, Rassen. Rasse is not very used as it's not it's not commonly used in uh, reference to humans. Like not never. No. But but regard to dogs, that's what you call yes. a breed. Yeah, that's w- yeah. I was just gonna say that Hunderassen, like dog breeds, is very common. Yeah. That's and like animals in general. Yep, Pferderassen, like horse breeds as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where we use it, but never in re- uh, never when we talk about humans. At least not anymore. I mean, I no. I mean, that's probably a... because of the history we have with racism, and I think it's uh, probably a, a good and smart thing to be very careful when using the term "rasse." Mm. But it's very weird when you uh, compare English and, and German, because, for example, when in a seminar you want to talk about an English text that deals with race, I mean, you have to translate it with "rasse." It just feels wrong and mm. weird, and you always have to make a disclaimer in the beginning. So, yeah, I'm going to use that term now, like the German term "Rasse," but just because it's a direct translation from the English one, I wouldn't use it uh, if I didn't talk about that text. So, it's it's a very different situation. Mm-hmm. It probably depends on the history. So, so words yes. normally we think of them as pointing to something, right? Yes. Like that's how we, the, most people, I like think, in imagine. A very Phrygian sense, yeah. Yeah, I remember when I was in in school. One of my teachers asked me, asked us rather, uh, mm-hmm. how we thought language began. What would you do if you couldn't speak the language of another person? And we all said, "We'll just use you know signs to point mm-hmm. with, just start yeah. pointing at things." Uh, so th- I think we all intuitively imagine that that's what words do. They point point to things. Yes. And so, is that the problem with translation? Is that what happens there? Is that um, in English we're pointing to one thing, in German you're pointing to another thing? We're pointing to a thing with the word bug. You're pointing to a, a thing with the word kefa, and those things don't overlap. Well, it's not actually the same thing in the world that they're referring to. For me, by the way, if I were to think of a translation of bug, I think ungeziefer, would that be ungeziefer? Yeah, or schädlinge. Schädlinge? No, ungeziefer is maybe better because schädlinge, schädlinge can also be rats. E- oh, example. yeah, that's definitely not right. And yeah. it's not a bug. That's a, no, no, that's no, a no. pest. So uh, it's probably ungeziefer. Yeah, that's just a creepy probably, crawly, basically, yeah. is, is what we mean by bug. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, because you don't only mean kefa, although it's very often translated with kefa. Mm, yeah. Like in a bug's life. But they are not right. all kefa as well. Exactly, right. Yeah. 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 Like ants aren't kefa. Definitely not. No. But um, just on, on the sheer basis of how you and I communicate with each other, is the meaning of, of the word bug determined by the set of all things it refers to? So the set of all things that bug refers to mm-hmm. is a big set, obviously, and mm-hmm. bigger in English in English than the word kefir, for example, refers in German. So it's probably better translated as something else, maybe mm-hmm. ungeziefer, we were just saying. But uh, is that really where the meaning of that word comes from? Or is meaning determined by the concept that I as an individual or maybe in, in conglomeration with all of the other people in my community, I create out of it a concept is that where where the meaning of hmm. of the word comes from yeah well that's a question philosophers have been dealing with for a very long time right hmm. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, probably... Pfft. Yeah, well, I think with the term water, there is clearly an, an extension that is that, that defines what we mean by the word, right? So we have water, and when we talk about water, we all know what, what water means, like H2O molecules in a large pool, and they can be liquid or... Gas. Gas. Did you say gas? Yeah. And solid. And yeah. solid, yeah, mm -hmm. right. But for example, ungeziefer or bugs is pretty interesting, I think, because we i think that's a category we made up and it's not just defined by all the classes of things we put in there but by what we want to mean by it so there are things some people would say is a bug some people would say isn't a bug so that's clearly a difference between the usage of this word and i think it depends on what the person has in his or her head what bugs means you know ask yourself this are there any real things in the world that we might call bugs? I'm guessing you think that's an absurd question. Of course there are bugs. You got freaked out by a daddy long legs in the basement just yesterday. Or there was a moth last night in your lamp, beating its wings against the lampshade like an arrhythmic heart, or leaving its freaky-ass moth dust everywhere. Just as an aside, what kind of creatures are made of dust, honestly? Anyhow, you're pretty sure there are bugs. Well, of course, you're right, those are all things that you encounter in the world, but by what criteria would you justify lumping all of those things into one buggy category and pronouncing it to be a real category of things? For millennia now, philosophers have tried their best to pinpoint those kinds of things that are really genuinely naturally real kinds. Aristotle's model of the natural universe depended on the assumption of the reality of such kinds. In the modern era, John Stuart Mill reintroduced the term natural kind into discussion. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, philosophers who had a resurgent fascination with ontological realism, like Charles Sanders Peirce, followed Mill's examples. And then, in the middle of the 20th century, philosophers with a background in linguistic semantics, like Saul Kripke and Hilary Putnam, wanted to clearly lay out how words come to be meaningful and truth-bearing and to identify some words as natural kinds because they point to real things in space and time, all of which resemble each other in many ways and not by accident. In 2016, the philosopher Stuart Humphrey set out to defend the claim that there are real natural kinds in his book Natural Kinds and Genesis. His general questions are, is there such a thing as a natural kind? And if so, of all the things in the universe we know of, which of those are natural kinds? The first question I had, which is a preliminary question, was how much deference should philosophical reflection and scientific theorizing pay to everyday thought? Well, I think it's going to depend on the topic, but um, rather than speak of how much deference, uh, I just I'd rather simply note that everyday thought is is where we all are most of the time, and it's where we we begin. It's where scientists themselves begin, and uh, the reason I begin from everyday thought is that, as I argue in my book, although the, the expression natural kind is semi-technical, uh, the concept of a natural kind has its native home in, in everyday thought. Yeah. So uh, since my first task is to give an account of that concept, to uh, clarify it and indicate how it's different from related concepts, 
everyday thought is uh, where I begin. But it's certainly true that in the sciences, one may very quickly depart from everyday thought and uh, end up contradicting uh, everyday thought. Mm. So again, I don't think it's a matter of deference, though I do think that with respect to some things, it might be wise to stay very close to everyday thought. Think again of that famous story of Newton lazing away all of a day in his parents' garden, watching an apple fall. That could certainly happen to all of us, but the crux of that story has always been the moment when his mind departs from everyday thought. Imagining myself completely ignorant of modern physics, which isn't all that hard, I might ask myself why an apple goes down, but for me it's a pretty big departure to guess that there is some mathematically fixed attraction between the center of the apple and the center of the earth. To even think that mass and weight are two different things is strange. It's hard to intuitively think of what mass means when you extract our intimate relationship with gravitational force. I know what it feels like to be heavy. I can't imagine what mass feels like. And I've never been in outer space. One of the claims I make and argue for uh, in my book is that the concept of a natural kind has its native home in everyday thought. Yeah. Uh, uh, let me let me let me give some examples of concepts that pretty clearly don't. Mm-hmm. Um, the concept of a quark, for example, I don't think has its native home in everyday thought. It has its native home in the standard model in particle physics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to to figure out what that concept is, one would have to study very carefully the uh, standard model, as it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, the concept of a codon in uh, genetics, that, that concept doesn't have its native home in everyday thought. It has its home in molecular genetics. And to figure out what that concept is, uh, one would have to study that discipline uh, very carefully. The expression natural kind, as far as I can tell, was uh, invented by John Venn who is following Mill. Mill used the uh, expression real kind in his logic, mm-hmm. system of logic. And John Venn uh, was a close student of Mill's logic. And where uh, Mill often uses the expression real kind, John Venn uses natural kind. And John Maynard Keynes in his theory of probability picked that up. But others probably better known to many philosophers these days are such people as Saul Kripke and Brian Ellis, both natural kinds realists. They're quite well known. The same expression is used, and I think it's the same concept. So if I'm right about this, it should be the case that if one looks closely at John Venn's uh, introduction of the term, one will find that uh, he's relying considerably on uh, everyday thought. They were taking as examples of natural kinds such things as as horses, human beings, mm-hmm. phosphorus, sulfur, things like that. Uh, phosphorus is a, is a technical term, um, but uh, it's, it's pretty close to uh, ordinary thought. Uh, iron might be a better example. Yeah. That would be a natural kind, too. 
uh, according to them. Now, maybe these aren't actually natural kinds, but many people much of the time just assume that they are. And what I'm doing in my book is I'm just looking at these assumptions and using it as a way of trying to figure out what it is to be a, a natural kind. And I think I can answer that question. The harder question is whether there are any natural kinds. That might sound like putting the cart before the horse, but that would be the case only if you presume that natural kinds are themselves a sort of natural kind. The instances of natural kinds, if there are any such instances, are things that genuinely exist in the world, independent of our concept of them. They would be there even if our consciousness says cease to exist. But the well-formed concept of a natural kind would definitely cease to exist in that case, except as a fact of history. So indeed, it's not the case that knowing what a natural kind is, or maybe better said, what a natural kind is supposed to be, necessarily means that there are any such natural kinds. Even if it turns out that the concept of a natural kind has no use in scientific theory, it may still have great uh, pragmatic value. Not only in everyday life, but when, uh, let's say, a uh, biologist is, is studying some new and strange group of, of animals or plants, they will begin to classify them. And these classifications are, are probably putative natural kinds. It may turn out that they don't exist, but it's very useful to posit them in order to make some progress in trying to figure out how, how they really ought to be grouped. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Darwin did this in his uh, study of uh, barnacles. That's a, that's a pretty strange group of, of animals. And it's very hard to figure out what the true groupings are. And he, he started out by simply positing certain natural kinds, where he thought there were two, two natural groups, two natural kinds. There was only one. Okay, we're bordering. We're getting so close. We're, we're teetering on getting right into our very specific topic. So I'm going to, to draw us back just a little bit so that we okay. can lay the, lay the groundwork, and then I'll come back to these topics, since that's okay. so very close to the topic of race. Yep. Um, you've written that kinds must be understood as classes or types. And what's the difference between a class and a type? Yeah. Um, Armstrong, the um, Australian philosopher, he uses the word type a lot in his works. Mm -hmm. And he's written several books on uh, universals, also a uh, related topic. He uses the uh, e example of letters, which I think is a pretty good one. Let's take the, the letter A, and let's take the class of all instances of the letter A. He calls those tokens, and I'll call them tokens too. So we have a distinction between type and token. Yeah. The type would be the letter A. Uh, tokens would be instances of the letter A. So, so that's what a type is. Got it. And a class would be uh, that whose members are, are these tokens. And uh, if, if one is interested in the natural types and natural classes, a natural class would be the class of all tokens of some natural type. This distinction is hard for me to wrap my mind around. I'm not sure if it's the right sort of distinction, but 
Consider what companies like 23andMe or Ancestry.com do with genetic data. They perform a multivariate analysis based on particular areas of the genome that they know, taken together, create data clusters. Those data clusters show us groups of humans who have ancestry from certain geographical regions. Then they take those clusters and make categories out of them, namely people with English ancestry or people with Malian ancestry. I can't quite parse whether those clusters and categories are something like types and classes, as Humphrey describes them. It could be, not necessarily, but it could be. And um, here I would like to distinguish between different sorts of natural group. They can, they're, they're all quite natural, let's suppose. But they're, they're, they're different natural groupings. A natural kind is based on um, uh, resemblance of some sort, and it, it's not historical, it's not geographical. Um, there are uh, kinship groups also. Those are natural, apparently. Uh, I underline apparently, and uh, they can be uh, quite e extensive. And this, in fact, is how, how Darwin understood species or what he, what he called races, but they are kinship groups. They have um, historical loci or, or origins, and um, they have histories. And uh, I, I would rather call these genealogical kinds rather than natural mm -hmm. kinds, but they're both natural. I mean, what, it would be quite possible. I don't think it would be correct, but it, it would be possible to use the word, the expression natural kind, for both of sorts of natural grouping, one of which is not historical, not geographical, based fundamentally on some sort of resemblance, and the other kind, which is um, which is historical and geographical. Now, their way of getting at this other sort of natural grouping is through a sort of resemblance. Yeah. Right. And. Um, uh, I don't know how they're understanding the category, but it's possible they are understanding the category as a type. And um, this would mean that the, the very extensive kinship group that they have in mind, they also understand as a natural type or as, an, uh, uh, or as a, nat a natural class or as a natural kind. It's quite possible that, that uh, there are some natural groupings which can be understood in both ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm reluctant to, to follow them if, if that's what they're doing. In a summary of the arguments in his book, Humphrey, following other natural kind theorists, maintains we should regard some putative kind as a natural kind, in the primary sense of the term, only if its members are enduring things or masses. In other words, only if its members are continuance. The substance called water and the class of all and only H2O molecules are then natural kinds. So too, apparently, are the class of humans, the class of hurricanes, and the class of electrons. 
And then he casts his critical eye towards human beings. And it doesn't make me feel particularly great. He asks, in virtue of what is a human being a genuine continuant and not merely a continuant-like succession of cellular or molecular multitudes which we, for practical purposes, regard as singular? Ouch. When you start looking into natural kinds, you get more than you bargained for. Am I right? You hold it as a tenet of your belief about natural kinds that there cannot be one token that belongs simultaneously to more than one natural kind? Yeah, I do. Uh, yes, I, I do argue that. And uh, that's a... Uh, this gets a little esoteric, but um, a, a natural kind is a class whose members are, let's see, all and only those continuants which instantiate or exemplify. And here's the key clause in virtue of their natures or essences, one type. And there are people who maintain that uh, a given enduring thing. Can, can belong to more than one specific type. Of course, it can belong to a specific type and to a generic type. Uh, that's not a problem at all. The question is whether it can belong to two different specific types. I know what you're getting at here. There are people who, who do claim that uh, one individual can belong to more than one natural kind. And I certainly agree that there's often more, more than one way of classifying a given individual. Here's, here's a good example from the sciences. Uh, you, you begin with, with a uh, hydrogen atom, and you're a chemist, you're a molecular chemist, and you remove one of the electrons. Well, what you've produced this way is a hydrogen ion. But what the particle physicist says is that it's a proton. Mm -hmm. And those are two different ways of classifying one and the same individual. But obviously, in the one case, it's the chemist classifying it as a chemist. In the other case, it's the particle physicist classifying it as a particle physicist. And if one accepts my argument that it does belong to just one natural kind, if it is a natural kind, then one has to decide whether the chemist is right about this or the physicist, or maybe neither. In that case, you, it's possible that we have to abandon uh, either a hydrogen ion or a proton um, as, as a natural kind whatsoever. Yep. Okay. Yes, they, uh, the, these uh, classification systems appear to be relative to the uh, theory one is working with. And um, then the question is, well, is any of these theories um, declaring uh, what's natural as such? Hmm. Presumably, they, they are both about the same individual. But, uh, yeah, but there are two very different ways of, of classifying it. And uh, this, this sort of thing occurs all the time, hmm. I mean, even, in, um, even in ordinary thought. Doesn't that disconcert you? I mean, like, do, do, do your emotions ever get into the, when, you, when you're in your... In your armchair. I don't know where you do your philosophizing <laughs> on the lawnmower. I don't know. Uh, 
doesn't do these things ever trouble you? That is literally trouble you. That is actually give you. Oh yeah. You know, emotional pause. Is that that existential pause? Um, I don't know how the world is. I really can't conceive of of what the actual oh, yeah. nat- natural essence of any particular thing, even something that ought that I feel like is is my best possible case for being a thing I could give a a, a testament to its natural essence or nature. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In this particular case, even then, I could think of two categories I could put it into, and it neither if if both of those if those those yeah. are discrete, then then neither of them can actually be the natural. Yeah, I, 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 I only write books about things that have troubled me for a long time. Oh yeah. <laughs> so this is, uh, this, this book that we're going through could be regarded, I guess, um, uh, as a, as an insight to, into something that's long troubled me. Doesn't trouble a lot of other people, but it's really troubled me. And mm-hmm. my, my book is setting out my troubles. <laughs> it's a confession. <laughs> it's a confessional I book. I, I, I bet I, I'm willing to wager most good writers work that way. That is, if you're if you're not really emotionally invested in what you're writing about, and even in philosophy, yeah. even in the most uh, abstract of things, yeah. then you're probably not really writing <laughs> very well. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you, you need to be invested in these things. It's um, absolutely. But it, it's yeah. it, it's worthwhile being invested. I I, I hope that. I, I hope, if nothing else, I accomplish with this podcast, making making it clear that it's worthwhile right. thinking about these things. Well, you you, you shouldn't have much trouble uh, since your since your principal topic is race, right? I mean, yeah, lots of people are troubled about that. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's get to it. Um, let's talk about that. Um, we've established the terms. Are there any classes of races? Whose members are all and only those continuants which exemplify in virtue of their nature or essences, <laughs> using your your very specific term, and I'm going to put that clause you just mentioned in there, in virtue of their natures or essences, that are single types. Are there such th- are there such types or classes? Uh, I don't think there are. I haven't seen uh, any any evidence presented for for that. It's not something that I've that I've studied greatly because I I tend to think. Um, that there aren't such natural kinds. My interest in racism is in races is more a political interest in in racism. But one thing that I, I would do if I if I were to investigate this, uh, and this would mean spending years on it, uh, here here is a place where I really think we have to look to the um, relevant biology. And if we if we take um, evolutionary theory. Uh, it's not at all clear that we're talking about natural kinds in my sense of the term. We are talking about natural groups, let's say species. Uh, Darwin in his Descent of Man argued that all the uh, human beings on the earth today have descended from one common ancestor. That was important. That, that's the main thing that he tries to establish in that book. And uh, this conclusion is um, generally accepted these days. Uh, I don't remember now whether he thought it probably that this common ancestor probably lived in Africa. I don't think he, he claims or implies that, but I could be mistaken. That, that's pretty generally accepted. And if one is going to uh, do what I recommend, and that is look very closely at the, at the relevant uh, scientific theory, then uh, one will at least tentatively accept that. Uh, but 
and this is this is the one thing that I would want to emphasize here. We are now apparently interested in those natural groups which are in the first place at least not natural kinds but kinship groups they have geographical origins mm. they have histories and uh, darwin darwin calls these species but they are what i call genealogical species rather than typological species and um darwin himself and uh, evolutionary theorists ever since have been very interested in the phenomenon of divergence and as this this species homo sapiens moved about the earth its members moved into very different sorts of habitat they adapted to these different habitats and it does appear that in the course of this they gradually diverged and uh, divergence is what we look for for the um for the emergence of subspecies which are, which are not yet species none of them is yet a species uh the, these lines are very difficult to to draw and we'd want to look closely at how biologists actually draw them when when does a subspecies become a species um and that's not an easy topic uh in fact there seems to be no single concept of a species in uh, biological theory there are different concepts and there's a lot which biologists have written about these different concepts and which one should be accepted and uh it's also the case that there's been a lot of intermating among there's been a continued movement so people from different parts will will move into um still other parts uh mate with the people there so there's been a lot of this combining at the same time and um then the question about the uh existence of races as these natural groups these natural kinship groups uh this would be and it's a scientific question whether there's been sufficient divergence that um, we can say that there are, let's say, two or three or four fairly distinct subspecies. I have no opinion about this. The only thing that I would insist on is that um, these natural groups need not be understood as natural kinds, and I think that probably shouldn't be because I'm not sure that there are any essences here. That interview is just dripping with more material, and it would be pretty terrible not to share it. So as a special treat, we promise to release a bonus feature in our feed with extra bits from Stuart Humphrey. What I find really refreshing for a philosopher is the emphasis that Humphrey puts on sort of everyday thinking, the way that people are normally going to be thinking about and using concepts. Um, because if we do try and abstract them too far away from their native context, it's not so much a, a philosophical question as really just a practical question. You know, what can we say then that's useful uh, about these ideas once we've forgotten where they came from, why they're used, and how they're used. Yeah, the bit about the bit of that conversation that we had that really still sticks with me and let I me mean, to be frank haunts me is um the bit at the very end where we establish, you know, maybe there's no grounding most of the everyday thinking that we do and and yet his 
practical, pragmatic advice is to try to ground us in that that everyday thinking. But everything that we talked about would lead you to a kind of agnosticism about about you know how much it can actually mean anything. You know, what, what the categories we have, what do they mean? Do they have any actual basis in reality? And and you know, to a large extent, his answer is maybe, but you might not be able to know. And that's really <clears throat> yeah. But also, on the other hand, in how far is that really unique to this particular question? And in no. how far is it just the issue of if you say a word enough times, eventually you'll be confused as to what it actually means? I mean, meaning is a slippery thing in general. Um, and if we're going to try and tackle meaning, I think we're going to need another season. Million Little Gods is produced at the University of Hamburg from our studios, quote unquote, at the beautiful historic City Nord building uh, in the north of Hamburg, Germany, right next to the Frisbee Golf Course for some reason. Ben and I share the load on writing and production, and the editing and mixing are done by me, and this one nearly killed me. Marin Christoph was a segment producer for this episode. Our other student producers are Julia Appa, Pat Nels, Leonie Bauer, and Anna Pichich. Thanks to Stuart Humphrey for talking to us, and talking to us again after we deleted the first interview. Stuart's new book, The Aristotelian Tradition of Natural Kinds and Its Demise, was released in August. Our theme song is by Nick McDonald and his band Recycled. This episode also featured music by Poddington Bear, and if you recognize the song Ruckzuck by the band Kraftwerk as the theme song to the show Newton's Apple, first of all, you are a nerd, and second of all, you are old. We're on Twitter at AMLG Podcast, at, at AMLG Podcast. Do I need to do the at twice, or is it implied? Find us online at amillionlittlegods.com, and our Facebook page is facebook.com slash amillionlittlegods. We'll be taking a hiatus from production for the holidays, but don't worry. We have a secret Santa gift for you on December 20th. And I'm no good at that game, so I'll just tell you what it is. We did a special crossover interview with Barry Lamb of Hi-Fi Nation. Barry curses a lot more than you might expect. You're going to love it. And then in the new year, meet us here for episode four, Deflation. <laughs>